She's one of the most powerful women in the world, editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, one-time candidate for California governor, and an author of 15 books, the latest one called The Sleep Revolution. Ariana Huffington joined us in between a major book party and a ride-along with Uber CEO Travis Kalanick. They're teaming up for a campaign against drowsy driving. Joining me today on this edition of Studio 1.0, Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the Huffington Post. Ariana, thank you so much for being here. It's really great thank to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Verizon, which owns AOL, which now owns the Huffington Post, has said they're going to bid for Yahoo. Do you believe that Verizon has a long-term content strategy that includes Yahoo and the Huffington Post? And if so, what is it? Well, Verizon um, has decided, and that's, of course, why they bought the Huffington Post, that um, the future for them has to include a, a very robust media technology company. So Yahoo would, very, would fit very well in the strategy. Now, of course, there's competition <laughs> with SoftBank and maybe Google. Um, so we'll see what happens. So what are the synergies that you see with Verizon and the Huffington Post? Well, the synergy is that Verizon obviously has a huge distribution potential for us, especially as we are moving more and more into video. And they've launched Go90, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, their mobile video play and uh, have um, produced and paid for great content from uh, from many providers. So this is fantastic for HuffPost because it gives us great distribution. What do you think about this whole idea of a wireless company getting into content? It's not just Verizon, it's AT&T. It's such an interesting new world. But I think it's a very smart move because the world is changing. Mm -hmm. And it's really the innovator's dilemma that if you don't change fast enough because you're a big successful company as Verizon is, then it's too late to change. I mean, in a sense, if the New York Times had changed early enough when it came to digital technologies, there would be no room for the Huffington Post. There's been such intense scrutiny on Marissa Meyer's leadership and the attempted turnaround. Now she's fighting for her job. Do you sympathize with her at all? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel that, um, um, you know, Marissa is a working mother who chose to run Yahoo a certain way. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the moment, Clearly, shareholders are not happy with the way it's been run. When you are a public company, that's one of the dangers you, you run. Do you think Yahoo could be revitalized with new leadership? Well, I think one of the, the great advantages of Yahoo is that it is a hybrid. It is a journalistic enterprise, and it is a platform. And it owns Tumblr. I think Tumblr is an incredible asset, because as more and more people want to express their views in more than 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> and you have like an incredible opportunity to use Tumblr to allow people to express their views and to also use it as a native advertising play. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we see that this is for us definitely uh, one of the most important monetization channels, you know, our relationship with um, Goldman Sachs, with Chipotle, with all sorts of different brands, Sleep Number, mm -hmm. a great mattress company. Yeah. 
that uh, create all entire sections that are really, for me, kind of one of the most evolved forms of native advertising. So would you like to see Yahoo at Verizon? Would you like to see Yahoo in the family? Absolutely. I mean, it provides us, you know, a bigger playground. How have you liked working with Tim Armstrong, the CEO of AOL, and do you buy into his idea, his plan to build a media and advertising giant that could compete with Google, compete with Facebook? Well, first of all, Tim and I have now worked together for five years. Yeah. Um, he bought the Huffington Post in 2011, which, if you think of it, it was an, a visionary act because uh, shareholders punished the AOL <laughs> stock at the time, do you remember? Yes. They thought it was a foolhardy move. Um, AOL received two bids uh, while they were negotiating with Verizon to buy the Huffington Post for a billion dollars. Mm. Really? So clearly, he bought it for 315 million. So already, you know, in, in what was then four years, he had um, an asset that, uh, because he invested in us, um, had significantly, had become significantly more valuable. And he really backed me up when I wanted to take the Huffington Post around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really fantastic, you know, from our first trip together a couple of months after the acquisition <laughs> in London, we announced we would be expanding in the UK, in Canada. And as a result, we became the, f we had the kind of first mover advantage of um, growing internationally while now everybody's trying to to do the same thing. Facebook is, is interesting because on the one hand, we're, we're seeing this trend where potentially personal sharing is down on Facebook, but people are sharing more news. Well, I am incredibly, um, I'm an incredible believer in Facebook Live. I think they really have a winning combination here of live and video. You know, I'm a big believer in live. We launched Half Post Live um, four years ago. And, uh, and the way they're doing it, I mean, Cheryl and I did a conversation yesterday, and you suddenly have all these tens of thousands of people watching something. Um, that is the right length, right. kind of under 10 minutes. So you think Facebook can win in live when Twitter or maybe even Snapchat is where you might go for live? I think Facebook has a great chance to win in live. Mm -hmm. and, and they know that. And as you know, they are putting a lot of resources behind live. We partnered with them in launching a series called Talk To Me, which is uh, children interviewing their parents. Actually, we had a great one of Travis Kalanick interviewing his dad. Oh, that's adorable. Uh, it's, it's all kind of more older children, you know, so that you can have, like, meaningful conversations rather than cute conversations. <laughs> what do you think about Medium and the rise of Medium? Is it a, is it a threat to online publications? Oh, no, I love Medium. I, I think um, what Ev Williams has done is absolutely fantastic. Um, I just did... Um, a, a conversation with him on stage at um, at a conference, and uh, we want to partner together. I'm, I'm a big believer in partnerships. Mm -hmm. I feel partnerships are the future. The reason HalfPost has grown so fast globally is that every single one of our international editions is a JV or a commercial partnership with a major media player, like Le Monde in France or Asahi Shimbun in mm -hmm. Japan. 
And I think partnerships make it possible for you to grow much faster and um, to have all the advantages of having a local player involved who knows the market. We've been talking a lot about issues like diversity and inclusion in the tech industry and uh, the fact that women and minorities are still very underrepresented. When it comes to things like culture and inclusion, when should companies start thinking about these things? Should they start thinking about these things on day one? I think they should start thinking about these things on day one. Um, because let's take, let's take women for a moment. If you really make diversity and hiring women and encouraging them to get to the top from day one, um, you are going to act in ways that increase the pool from which women um, apply to join the, the ranks. Women, according to all the latest medical science, process stress differently. Mm -hmm. So we internalize stress more. Mm -hmm. And so women in stressful jobs, which I'm sure includes every job in the valley, have a 40% greater risk of heart disease and a 60% greater risk of diabetes. So you see a lot of women drop out. And that's one of the things that needs to be stopped. And I feel that that's a kind of the next feminist revolution, when women don't say we want to get to the top of whatever world we are competing in, but they also say we want to change the world. Because the way workplaces have been designed by men are not sustainable. Why do you think the tech industry in particular has such a problem with women? It's not just women starting companies, it's women in engineering, it's women in venture capital. There just aren't enough. I think it is a, a, a problem that has a lot to do with the burnout culture. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to look around and see the price we're paying for the way we're living. I mean, look, Emily, at last year, how many executives we had literally collapsing, either on stage, like the CEO of BMW, or on their treadmill, like the CEO of United, mm -hmm or um, Jimmy Lee, the head of M&A at JP Morgan. So what do workplaces need to do? What do tech companies need to do? Well, they need to make it very clear that there is a time when work ends, meaning you're not expected to be on all the time. You know, you talk to people who work at Google and there is the green light, meaning that you are still on, mm -hmm. and there is this competition. <laughs> Uh, are you on all the time and that's supposed to be good? Or how quickly do you return texts or emails? That is a culture that is barbaric. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has to change by making it very clear from the top that, I mean, that's what we're doing at the Huffington Post. When, when your work ends, you're not expected to be available. Mm -hmm. If there is something urgent, we will reach you, we'll text you, we'll call you, but otherwise that's your time to recharge and return, fully recharge to the office. You started your own business. Why don't more women start companies? There is something about risk taking. Mm -hmm. um, I think leaving aside the institutional barriers, the kind of personal barriers, we have a harder time being disapproved of or dealing with naysayers. Mm -hmm. We have this voice that men have too, but women, in my experience, have it much stronger than men, which is, I call it the obnoxious roommate living in my head. You know, that puts me down, that doubts me, that questions what I did or what I said. And it's very draining. <laughs> 
And uh, if you start a new business, three quarters of them don't succeed. So you have to be more comfortable with failure. I was kind of lucky that I was brought up by a mother in a one-bedroom apartment in Athens who um, kept saying to me, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. So she always made, made me feel that it was OK to try anything and fail along the way. And so when I wanted to go to Cambridge, for example, and everybody said, oh, you'll never get in. You don't speak English. We don't have money. She sort of said, let's find a way for you to get to Cambridge. And we knew it was uh, unlikely and that I probably would fail. But that didn't stop us from trying. So I think more women need to have that sense that it's OK to fail along the way. Because I mean, you've talked to every entrepreneur under the sun. Is there anybody who hasn't failed along the way? A lot of people blame the, the diversity problem in the tech industry on networking. People hire people that they know. So men hire men, for example. You are very close personal friends with, with Sheryl Sandberg. What do you think about the role of networks and the power of networks to empower women, but also work against them? Well, networks have always been important, I'm sure, through ancient times, because we want to work with people we like. They can become a problem if we want to only work with people who are similar to us. I mean, I know, Emily, that when I was building the Huffington Post, I realized that if we we're going to succeed, I had to hire people whom I might not want to have dinner with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had to hire people who were a third of my age <laughs> and knew things I didn't know and knew them in a deeper way than I could ever know them. And they were essential for our success. And the same applies in any field. And also, even if you are the boss, you need to realize you don't know everything, especially in a, in a very fast-changing world where constantly disrupting ourselves is essential uh, for success. So sleep is one of the great mysteries of science. It's something that we still don't know a lot about, and yet you have written a whole book about it. This originated from your own wake-up call. What happened? So nine years ago, almost to the day, I collapsed from sleep deprivation and exhaustion two years into building the Huffington Post with two teenage daughters as a single mom taking one of them around colleges to decide what colleges she was going to apply to. I came back to my home office. And I got up to get a sweater because I was cold. I fainted. I hit my head on my way down and broke my cheekbone. And that was, for me, the beginning of reevaluating my life and recognizing that, based on the later scientific findings, Trying to get by on four to five hours sleep is not sustainable unless you are one of the tiny percentage. About 1% of us uh, are known in, in scientific circles as short sleepers. And they can get by on four or five hours without any adverse effects. But it's a genetic mutation. So that is a real thing. It is a genetic. You can test yourself for it. I do not have it. <laughs> <laughs> so I optimally need eight hours. Every scientist will tell you that unless you have that genetic mutation, you need somewhere between seven and nine hours to be operating on all cylinders 
um, for your immune system to be strong so you don't get colds and other diseases, for your cortisol levels to be low so you don't have constant stress in your body, and also at the brain level for your cognitive um, functions to be at their best. You are one of the most powerful women in the world. You founded the Huffington Post. You've, you run 15 editions around the world. What about the little guy? How do you tell your boss, I need, I'm sorry, I need to take a nap? If you uh, have one of those bosses, I think it's important to manage your discretionary time, the time that you have some control over. And we all have more discretionary time than we acknowledge. Somebody's watching House of Cards. <laughs> <laughs> so in Silicon Valley, it's a cutthroat world. Startups are just trying to stay alive. You started your own company. You know how taxing this is. How do companies manage this issue of overwork and undersleep when they're just trying to keep the lights on? Well, that's really the fundamental delusion. The delusion that by working around the clock, you're going to be more successful. And all the evidence is to the contrary, that in fact, in order to be at your most productive and your most creative and your most resilient, you need to be, to have had a good night's sleep because that's when you operate at your best. And I was actually talking to Travis today because he and I did a Travis Kalanick, Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber. And he said how as a young entrepreneur, he bought into that macho delusion that he is not going to sleep and he was going to drive himself into the ground. And he jokes, he said, I had failure after failure. <laughs> and uh, then I hit my 30s and I realized that I was actually much more effective. I was a much better leader when I was fully recharged. Mm -hmm. So you have not been shy about Donald Trump bragging about how little sleep he gets and how it's hurting his campaign. So I'm curious, what if he becomes president? What does that mean for America? I think it's very unlikely he will become president. So he's been bragging for a while that he only gets four hours sleep a night and that he sleeps with his phone because he doesn't want to miss out. And I think ultimately his lasting contribution to American life is going to be as exhibit A of sleep deprivation because he truly portrays all the symptoms that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has described as symptoms of chronic sleep deprivation, like inability to process even basic information, mood swings, outbursts of anger, paranoid tendencies, instability. And finally, he actually went so far when he called on women who have abortions to be punished that he had to retract it, and he doesn't retract anything. Maybe he doesn't become president, but nobody thought he would get this far. Does it worry you? Like, what if? He got this far partly because of the media. Mm -hmm. The media really did not do their job. Because he's so great for ratings, you know, they had him on, they, they, he could literally phone it in on any show, even the biggest Sunday morning shows, which they never allow any other candidate to do. He was not really challenged. I mean, Bob Woodward did a 90-minute interview with him for the Washington Post in which he did not ask him any questions about the fact that he's still a birther, that he still believes that the president of the United States was not born in this country, which is really like believing that the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. 
And he didn't ask him anything about the fact that he proposed to ban 1.6 billion Muslims from this country. And he didn't ask him anything about the fact that he's inciting violence regularly in his rallies, saying that he wants to see a protester carried out on, on a stretcher and things like that. If you don't ask him these basic questions, how can the public be expected to remember who Donald Trump is? That's why we have appended an editor's note at the bottom of each story that covers Trump, which says, we want to remind our readers that Donald Trump is a birther who has um, asked that 1.6 billion Muslims are banned from this country, who constantly incites violence in his rallies, who is a serial, misogynist, sexist, xenophobe. Mm -hmm. You need to remind the American public of these things. So does this mean you're a Hillary Clinton supporter? Like you, we are covering the election. And we are covering everyone. And um, we, we believe that that's our job. And, but it's not our job to pretend we don't have a very strong position on a candidate who, who is completely beyond the pay, like Donald Trump. So what keeps Ariana Huffington the sleep guru so, now, um, awake at night? I am a neurotic mother. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm not saying it proudly. Aren't all mothers neurotic in some way? I'm particularly neurotic. <laughs> like, uh, if I text one of my daughters, especially since my daughters are 24 and 26, they're not five and seven, um, and I don't get a response within three and a half seconds. <laughs> I move into major negative <laughs> fantasies. So I'm confessing this publicly in the hope that somebody will provide some help. <laughs> so what's next for, what's next? This is your 15th book. This what's is my 15th book. Uh, I'm very committed to this campaign. This book is uh, much beyond the, the actual book. It's like we have this college outreach to over 100 colleges because I want to reach that millennial audience and help them uh, understand that sleep is essential to their well-being and to their grades and to their careers. Uh, we have the campaign against drowsy driving. We have a partnership with Marriott, JetBlue, Airbnb. So uh, we want to reach a critical mass and change cultural norms. Ariana Huffington, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you, you so here much. And this is the last episode of season four. We will be back for season five, but I do want to give special thanks to our editor, Aaron Black, our producer, Candy Cheng, and the entire Studio 1.0 crew and team. This show was a pet project of mine that has turned into 42 episodes. You can check out the entire podcast library on iTunes or SoundCloud or the videos at Bloomberg.com. Keep following me at Emily Chang TV on Twitter. I'm Emily Chang.